0: And here we are Romans chapter 7 and we're going to talk about the worst enemy you will ever face in your life and sadly all your life. That's you. (laughs) Um, I am my own worst enemy. This is absolutely true. Certainly, I've experienced this in my own life. And as we read Romans 7, we read about really the angst, human angst and part of the problem of the human condition. That there is something wrong inside of me. It's not just the world. When you're a little kid, you think there's things wrong with the world. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. As you get older, you realize there's something wrong with me. And with all the world and its problems, what plagues me the most is me. So as we read it, we will find that Romans 7 is describing us. Each of us, hopefully, as we read it, we identify. Man, this is me. This is me. I feel this way. God's putting my thoughts into words in this passage. Now, there's a bunch of different threads coming together in our sort of verse-by-verse study through the whole book of Romans. So, Romans 7 doesn't stand totally alone. Um, and then when we get to Romans 8, there's even more threads that come together. It's like a climax passage, Romans 8, where all the stuff we've done so far in Romans sort of builds up to this dramatic high note of Romans chapter 8. But, for now, we all should know a few things. So, I'm going to give you vocabulary words. Here's your vocab words for Romans chapter One through seven so far Just, just three of them the first word is the word law the word law in the book of Romans is used in several different ways it's not one definition for the word sometimes Paul uses it talking about the law of Moses so these are the laws the Jews received from God through the hands of Moses and that's the law and he'll just call it the law and then he'll sometimes use the term law to represent an internal personal awareness of moral truth Now, there's a connection between that law, my conscience, right? My awareness of moral truth and Moses' law because Moses' law impacts that conscience and makes it more refined and better. But both of these, what they have in common is awareness of moral truth. There's a moral truth that he's talking about. But as you're reading, it'll make sense to you if you realize when he said law there, he meant Moses. When he said law there, he meant conscience. And sometimes when he says law, he seems to mean both. And if you just know that, it'll really help you as you read through the text. It'll make, it'll click, it'll make more sense. But there's a third way in which he uses the word law that's totally different than the other two. And the third way is when he uses the term meaning a general principle of how things work in life. And that's, that happens in Romans 7 in particular, we'll get there today. So you'll hear the word law and it'll just be like a general principle, like for instance the law of gravity. That's not a moral thing, it's just what we call it a law because it's, man, that always happens. And so he'll just talk about law like, there seems to be a rule that happens in my life. You know, whenever something good happens, something bad happens. Like That's, that's like the law you live under, that sort of thing. Um, that's kind of the, the sense in which he's using it. Now, it's, it's not hard to tell what he means. You just read the words in context and it should be obvious which, which use of law he's using. So that's the first vocab word, law. The second vocab word for, did you know you're going to get vocabulary words today in Bible study? Uh, the second one is the word flesh. Uh, Paul uses the word flesh a lot. I'm not going to get into a ton of deep theology, but I just want to say this, that flesh is not merely your physical body, but when Paul uses it in Romans, typically he's talking about our sinful nature, our fallen nature. And and it is actually in some sense connected to our bodies, but it's the fallen nature. The flesh is the, the, the seat of desires towards sin, selfishness, pride, Um, anything that rebels against the the love and goodness and truth of God, that's all flesh. That's of the flesh versus of the spirit, which is the opposite of all that. Um, And that's your third vocab word. Your third vocabulary word is spirit. Now the Bible can use the word spirit, you know, capital S talking about the Holy Spirit, or it can use the word spirit talking about a spirit as in the substance of which something is made of. Like God is spirit. That's speaking of his substance. Um, But it can also use the term spirit to talk about that eternal part of us which is alive now that we know Jesus. So we can serve him in the newness of the spirit instead of the oldness of the the letter. And this alive new part of us is connected with God and it's it's like juxtaposed. There's a fun word for you. It's set against the idea of the flesh. So spirit, flesh, two very different things. But they're cohabitating in one person. Hence the problem. (laughs) And so, so there you go. There's, there's your, your three vocab words. I I hope that they make sense to you. Um, And as a Christian, you have got, in reading the Bible, you've got to know the difference between the spirit and the flesh, or you will not understand a large number of the epistles. Just know the difference between spirit and flesh. Um, And worse, worse than that, not only will you not understand a lot of the scriptures, but you won't get life. Like you won't get the Christian life if you don't know. Hey, wait, that wasn't just, oh, I made a mistake. It's like, no, that was the flesh versus the spirit? Well, I think that my spirit is is directing me to do such-and-such. Such. Well, if it's if it's uh, the spirit, then it's a good motives and godliness, and if it's carnal or fleshly, then it's ungodly, and you can you can look at your mode of living in regards to these words. So I, it's, it's a real eye-opener, and it's a real important Christian worldview thing. So there's your three words, law, flesh, and spirit. So now we're going to read on. Romans chapter 7 verse 13. Let's pick up. It says, has then what is good Become death to me. Now, the good thing here is the law. If we read about it in context, but we dropped off in verse 12 and 13 last time, so we're picking up here. So has then what is good? The law. Has that become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. What's the good thing again? The law. Yes, the law here. Now, what does he mean? Moses' law or does he mean internal moral awareness? Yes, I think he just means both. I think to the Jew, they'd be thinking of Moses. To the, to the non-Jew, they're thinking of their personal awareness of moral law. I think it's both in this passage. Um, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. It might become exceedingly sinful. And what this does is this zooms out and it says, let's look at the cosmic thing that God is doing with your personal struggle against sin. It's a really interesting concept. I tend to think of my own struggles... As they impact me. If I'm really gracious and loving, I might consider how they impact my wife. (laughs) You know, I might consider how they impact others. I might as a pastor think how my personal struggle or my compromise in some area might be affecting my teaching, which then affects the discipleship to others that I do. I might be considering these things, but rarely do I think, I wonder how what I'm going through might impact the angels. You know, like I'm not really thinking about this very often, but there is something cosmic going on something universal in the struggle you have with sin. I think we can see this in the Old Testament that God sometimes does something cosmic or something very big through one person's little struggles and that person almost never realizes it. The book of Job is a fantastic example of this. The book of Job, we see a cosmic scene. The sons of God and, and, and Satan comes up and he's challenging God and, and Job gets thrown into the mix there between Satan and God. And then this guy, Job, his, his life becomes sort of the stage on which the glory of God is now going to be displayed. He's doing something big through this one guy's life. And maybe, just maybe, as insignificant as you might feel you are, maybe God's doing something big through the things that you're going through. And maybe it's in ways that you can't even see because you don't see most of what happens in reality. So God does this with sin, and that's what verse 13 is saying. So let me tell you my, how I'm interpreting verse 13, then we'll read it again. I'm interpreting it to say this, that he's using man and man's sinfulness and his moral law and truths, and he's using this black and white issue, this struggle, to demonstrate something to all of creation. That's what I'm saying. So let's look at it again and ask yourself, what is he demonstrating? Verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin, that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. What is the cosmic thing God is doing? He's showing the not only the the wrongness of sin, but the whole like putrescence of it. That's what he's doing through the rebellion of people. He's allowing to be displayed how messed up sin is. You want to know how messed up drugs, drug addiction is? Have someone in your family who's drug addicted and now you know. It is now on display. If you want to know how messed up divorce is in someone's life, either have it happen to you or somebody you know and you will see how messed up this thing is. It hurts. It is hard. It is painful. And it's now on display. And so here we have God putting these things on display. I think he's showing his glory to all of creation. He shows through sin, he shows love. Because if it wasn't for my fallen state in a sense God wouldn't have been able to show so much love to me. It's, it's, it's by comparison to my fallenness that he shows his love. So through sin he's going to reveal his love. He brings good out of the evil. He'll also reveal his righteousness. His righteousness because he's going to judge sin and he's going to deal with sin and he's going to let the, re- the rebellion against God take its course. He's going to let it take its course. It's like if I stand there holding up a sign that says, don't turn right, you'll go off a cliff. And then someone drives up and they turn right and they go off a cliff. What does that do about about me and my sign? Man, everyone's like, what did that sign say? (laughs) I realize how right you are in that issue. In the same sense, God is being shown as being right. God is showing us. He's showing the angels. He's showing what his righteousness really is. And he's showing how bad sin really is. And this is something that has to be shown because people don't get it. People don't think sin is that bad. They only don't like the consequences of sin, but they like the sin. You see the difference? It's like some people, I don't want to get busted. I don't want the pain of sin, but I want the sin. Well, God's trying to show us that sin is sinful. Sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me. So one of the ways God shows us that sin is sinful is by its penalty, death. There's death, there's judgment, there's eternal consequences for sin. And so I should look at it and go, wow, that must have been a very big deal. Sin must be really grievous. Another way is that it shows enslavement. When I, when I see someone who thinks they're, um, I, I can't help but think now of Pinocchio again. And Pinocchio and, you know, the, the whole donkey island, right? The kids, they, they ditch school, they're, they're, quote, sinning. And it's a cartoony version of things, right? But they're sinning and then they start turning into donkey slaves. And this is a picture of, of, of wow. Maybe what what I was doing wrong was worse than I thought because look at the slavery that it brought me into. And that's what sin does with our lives. It enslaves us. Jesus said, he who commits sin is a slave of sin. So sin is sinful. This simple truth is resisted by so many. In fact, the world flips it upside down and tries to say that sin is good. In fact, it's delicious. It's sinfully delicious. They try to spin it and flip it upside down and the world is, is... is, is upside down instead of right side up on this issue and it's interesting to me while people reject the idea that sin is sinful in, in many cases they'll have random exceptions whenever they feel offended. Um, but it's interesting that those who reject Jesus tend to have such a low morality by comparison to a Christian moral value system, right? Because in Christian morality for instance pride is looked at as a grievous sin. Drunkenness is looked at as a serious sin. You know, unforgiveness is a serious sin and these are things That the world would look at and laugh at or make excuses about or even enjoy pride is something that our culture now thinks is a beautiful thing thinks is a wonderful thing you should have pride you should have this sort of thing and and that's that's unfortunate the world tends to lower morality even though they often then pretend that their morality is higher and will even get mad at you because you don't agree Um, that's that's unfortunate it's the way it is though But I think what it comes down to, is this issue of um, autonomy versus accountability. So hear me out on this. When I reject God, I'm accountable only to me. So I filter my view of morality through what makes me feel good, what makes me happy, what what looks good in my eyes. I'm autonomous. I'm, I'm just, it's just me that I'm focused on in that regard. But if I'm under God, I have to filter all morality through whose eyes? Through his eyes. And so my morality becomes much higher, much stricter, much different than the morality where I reject God. And so when I encounter an unsafe person, I'm not only encountering somebody who rejects the Lord, but someone who will not be filtering moral values through the Lord. They have their own set of morals that's sort of wishy-washy, typically kind of cobbled together based on what they like and the experiences they've had. Whereas God obviously has a true set of morality that we all should have. Um, So sin that it may appear Sinful. Now we're getting, into, this is some deep stuff we're getting into here, but I, I, I like it. I think it's exciting stuff. Um, so verse 14, let's read on. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. The law is spiritual. The law here, is it talking about mosaic law or is it talking about personal awareness of moral truth? Yes. The law is spiritual. I think the answer is both. Um, it's good. It's holy. The law is not the problem. In what sense is it spiritual? It's in line with God. It's moral. It's all that. If I was spiritual, I would be behaving in these ways. So it's spiritual. Uh, The law is spiritual. But me, I have a problem. I'm carnal. I am carnal. That word carnal, also think of it as fleshy. Carnal. In fact, carnival comes from this. So does carne asada. That's also connected. (laughs) It's also connected as well. So it's about the flesh, the meat, you know, but uh, but again, this word flesh, our vocab we, I gave you, this is about our sin nature, sinful desires, desires that, that, are, fa- that are focused on me and uh, that sometimes and frequently go against God. Um, so, so far what we've got in this big mouthful of stuff we've already covered in just one verse, two verses, is that sin is utterly sinful. And God is going through great labors to show us how sinful sin is because we don't get it. I shouldn't think of sin as being a little mistake, a little issue. Any any sin that Jesus had to die for must be a big deal. As a Christian, I should realize this. But the problem here is, even if I am aware that sin is bad and God is good, I am carnal, sold under sin. I'm under this. I'm under this bondage. This is me. I'm of the flesh. So what does that mean in verse 14? I'm carnal, sold under sin. Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that what's physical is evil. Because again, by flesh, we're not just talking about a physical body. We're talking about a, 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 um, a carnal, sinful, fleshy desires. It does not mean physical equals bad. There was, in church history, of, after the first couple hundred years of the church, there's, there arose groups of people who thought that we should teach that all carnal stuff is bad. And by carnal, they meant physical. So they would have taught that it was somehow ungodly for husbands to even be with their wives. This is the stuff that like led to some serious weird confusions, including something called pillar saints. Have you heard of them? The pillar saints in the dark ages, so-called for good reason, um, they would put themselves up on a pillar, a literal pillar, and they'd sit there and they would starve themselves. Sometimes some they would stay up there until they died because that's holy, man, right there. Slow suicide, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? Slow suicide is exactly what God wants from us. I think it was a living sacrifice. You read it wrong, you know? Um, So the pillar saints would do things like take their their hands and and tie them with wrappings so that their fingernails would grow into their hand and through the skin and through the meat out the other end. They would rely on random strangers to bring them food up on poles, and sponges of liquid and stuff like that. Why? Because they were messed up in the head. This is not what scripture means when it says that what's carnal is bad or fleshly is bad. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that. So pillar saints, the problem there is that is not true denial of the flesh. And if they read Colossians, they would have known this. They would have known this. That's not really denying the flesh, the sinful nature. In fact, what you've done is you've t- you've taken a lot of carnal desires and set them aside and substituted them all for pride. <laughs> so here I am. You know the old the old phrase don't put yourself up on a pillar. There you go. Don't do it for multiple reasons. So what we what we what we do mean when we say the flesh is there's an ailment that that is in all of mankind. This has been driven into us hardcore in the book of Romans that we have a sin nature, a sinful capacity that we are simply We have all of us have this and we're all inclined towards sin Romans preaches this clearly talks about us being slaves of sin Romans 6 talks about our liberty from this our freedom from this in Christ But it but it grants that we have slavery to sin, but it's not just Romans The whole Bible endorses this idea of mankind being fallen in the same sense that Paul mentions here I'm carnal sold under sin In the book of Genesis, we read about Adam and Eve and we read about their their, their glorious garden and that lasts for about 10 seconds, right? And then, then they eat of the tree and then something changes in mankind. Shortly thereafter, we read about the first murder. Two brothers, surprise, surprise. And the first murder happens and not too long after that, the flood. And what the flood says, is the flood says that mankind was so wicked, so horrifically bad that God floods the entire earth. Now I hear people respond two ways to the flood and I think the way you respond says a lot about your your mind and your views. One, they respond by thinking wow God must be messed up for having flooded the world and the other group responds wow man must have been really messed up for God to flood the world. Now I know which one the scripture teaches. (laughs) I know where I stand on it, but it's interesting to me that when it comes to moral issues you will always end up Either condemning man or condemning God. But you can't stand on the fence. You eventually are going to get pushed to one or the other. I'm going to condemn man or condemn God. Somebody's condemned here. I don't think it's God. So in reality, this shows, this shows the wickedness of man. That all of man was that bad. And then, did man totally change? Did mankind completely change? No, of course not. He didn't. So why, is the, why God not flood the world again? Because he said he won't. Like, that's the reason why he hasn't done that. Um, then God chooses a people, Israel. Israel, this will be God's people and, and, and they'll have God's laws and they'll have God's guidance and prophets and judges and they'll have all this stuff and God's protections and all these things and they turn away from God over and over again. Have you read Judges? The book of Judges gets worse as you carry on. I mean, as a teacher, I've taught through Judges. As you get to the end, you're just like, I'm just looking for a good guy in this story, you know, <laughs> like, that I can talk about. It just ends up really bad. Seven times the people of Israel turn away and as a group they just do whatever's right in their own eyes. Which, as we learn, is a much lower moral standard than what God really calls us to. So the book of Judges shows us something. It shows us that even when God chooses a nation and gives them laws, they don't do it. Something's wrong with people, man. People are messed up. And this is not me attacking Israel, me attacking the Jews, because I think the Jews are representative of any nation. God could have picked any group of people and it would have been the same story as it was with the Israelites because it's a it's a people problem. It's a people problem. I remember hearing some people that were racist talk about how there's there's a, a lot of uh, domestic violence. There's a lot of domestic violence in the uh, I think it was the Spanish that, that, that he was talking about in Mexican homes. A lot of domestic violence and drinking and, I, and I'm a DV counselor right. So I'm like you're right there is. There is. We've studied the statistics and all that. I said, now what might surprise you is in the Italian communities, there's also a lot of domestic violence and heavy drinking. What really might shock you, what might really blow you away, is in British communities, there's a lot of domestic violence and drinking. I mean, this this might really surprise you. But in Canadian communities, you know what they have a lot of? Domestic violence and drinking. I mean, pick a culture. People are messed up. The problem is, I'm people. I'm not standing here like looking out at some distant crowd. They're all messed up, but I'm great. It's like I'm just looking in the mirror. And the problem is you're all like me. <laughs> that's the problem. So people are messed up. That, that's, kind of the, that's kind of the point. Um, in, John 8, in John 8, Jesus talks about this. He went to the, to the Jewish people. Now you would think knowing the background of Genesis, knowing the background of Judges, knowing the, the fallenness of Israel and the sin that, that the Bible keeps accusing mankind of that they would respond differently to Jesus, but they don't. Um, They miss the point. So in John 8, 31, Jesus is speaking. It says, Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, the ones who believed, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So they had some kind of belief, but the question was, would they really be disciples of Christ? And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. One of Hollywood's favorite verses to constantly quote out of context. Jesus is the truth, guys. Not whatever your Hollywood movie is about. Um, but yes, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, wait, make us free. And their pride gets in there. And it says, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? But they missed the point. Jesus, as usual, is, is talking about spiritual truths and spiritual realities. And they, as usual, are thinking about the last five minutes and what they're having for lunch. Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And he tells them the real issue is sin and your slavery to sin and I will set you free from this issue. And the slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Indeed. And that's really what Romans 6 and 7 is about, isn't it? About our slavery to sin and how the son sets us free. So then um, if you're asking, well, I want more details on what it means to be carnal, to be, quote, sold under sin. It means slave under sin. Well, we'll read on because Paul keeps explaining. So verse 15 of Romans 7. He says, for what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. The word will here means want or desire or preference or opinion or wish. So he'll say will a lot in this passage. He's talking about that. What what his preference is or his want is. I remember being a child and getting in trouble. It happened. And being asked over and over again as a kid, why did you do that? What were you thinking? And my answer was always the same. I don't know. (laughs) And I remember hearing the question, why did you do that? I and mean, it would be something weird. I, I got, you know, you get busted for you do weird stuff when you're a kid. You know, I used to like juggle knives in the kitchen. I'm not kidding. I would take knives and throw them in the air and then try to catch them by the handle. I'm actually pretty good at it now, but, but, the, but the linoleum in the kitchen still has all the scars. Yeah, turns out it's not that easy to get cut. We didn't have cut knives, though. I'd have no fingers if we did. But, but we just do weird stuff. We just do weird stuff. I remember going up onto the top of the roof and jumping off, just to see if I could. Me and my buddies, and then we're like, can you get to the pinnacle, get to the top, get to the top, okay, and then it stings your feet, you know, and you land, and we just do weird stuff. And then I do other weird stuff that I don't really want to tell you about. And I got busted for this weird stuff. Somebody's like, it's been quiet for a while, I wonder where Michael is. You know, and they go, and they open the door, and they're like, Michael, what were you doing? Why did you do that? And I look, and I'm going, what am I doing? I'm doing this, and I go, I don't know what I'm doing. I really don't know why I'm doing it. Tell me why. I don't know why I'm doing it. You better think of a reason. I don't know. And I never knew why. What I remembered as a kid was when I have kids and they do stupid things, I'll remember they don't know why. They don't, they really don't know why. I'll just remember this, this rule of life. Well, it appears as though Paul still didn't know why. Because here he says, for what I'm doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do, I don't practice, but what I hate that I do, it's not just children that do this. I mean, how many of us, if I followed you around throughout the week, would there be a time where I might grab you by the arm and say, hey, what are you doing? Why did you do that? Where you would look at me and go, I don't know, I don't, I this. I, because I, I am, I messed up, man. Something's wrong with me. Yes, exactly. Don't you feel it when there's things that you hate and you do it? And you're like, I hate it. But then I desire it. It's disgusting. It's wrong. Something's wrong with me. Yeah, and it's wrong with all of us. You're not alone. I mean, Paul the Apostle writes this about himself. He's like, That which I hate, I do. I don't understand. So if you're looking for Paul to fully explain the issues of sin nature and why you do things you don't, he didn't know either. I don't know. I just need help. And this is, this is Romans 7. It's, when I first read Romans 7 about being sold under sin, I thought, this is describing me. I, I mean, no one preaches on this, at least not that I had noticed in my time following the Lord at the time. I was like, I don't think I've ever heard this preached on it. But man, this is about me, Romans 7 is about me, Oh, wretched man that I am, like I completely identify with this and there was somehow comfort in that and just like Lord, you know, you know, you know, you know. But the news is it's not just me. This passage has so much value for so many who struggle against sin and have guilt and have a sense of self-loathing that is natural for those whose eyes have been opened to the goodness of God, and then they peer down and they see the ickness of self. There's a worship song that says, the more I see you as you are, the more you show me who I am. And man, that's, it's a a humbling thing to be a Christian. It's a humbling thing to look and realize like, man, my ideals keep getting higher, (laughs) but this just makes me look lower. And that's reality so this is very honest about our human condition Um, very honest about the human condition I love that about the Bible I love the honesty and integrity of the scriptures about the human condition I you know I've looked at other his religious books but I haven't seen such a genuine yep that is exactly what life is like uh, that I see in Scripture Um, but there is a debate that goes on with Romans 7 is the question is this is this pre salvation or post salvation some people go, well, Paul only struggled like that before he was saved, but after he was saved, clearly he wouldn't have struggled that way. I can say this, um, you, can't cle- you can't say clearly this is not post-salvation. There's nothing in the text that makes it clear that as a, as a saved believer he didn't experience this. Um, but perhaps the answer is it's both. It's pre- and post-salvation. It's pre and post-salvation the problem of the flesh the sin nature that the non-believer is under and enslaved to Is also the problem of the flesh that the believer can overcome But still has to deal with and I know as I read it I'm like well I'll tell you before I was saved I would have read this and I wouldn't have really thought that much about it because it wasn't until after I was saved that suddenly It was me hating those things Me despising them. I might have felt guilty, but I didn't hate them." Um, that was me as a believer. So what what I hate? Do you hate sin? Not as much as a non-believer as you do when you're saved, that's for sure. So it's honest about the struggle, but it'll be honest about the victory over sin. So hopefully we can, we can commiserate. We can commiserate with Paul. We can come together and be like, yeah, me too, Paul. (laughs) Me too. And I'm glad you're lame like me. Um, Verse 16, it says, If then, I do what I will not to do. I agree with the law that it is good. This is this is an important point we could miss because the wording is a little different than the way we would say it. Um, it's agreeing with Romans chapter two verse one. So if you flip there, this is kind of saying the same thing as Romans two one. It says, therefore you are inexcusable, O man. Whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. This is the this is not a do not judge verse. Remember, this is a radically misunderstood passage, but it's saying. That when you go, yeah, yeah, it's wrong to be mean for no reason, I'm agreeing that the law is good. And then when I've been mean for no reason, I'm sort of self-condemning. That's the idea. So if then I do what I will not to do, if I go, yeah, I shouldn't do that, I ought not do that. Well, then I'm agreeing that with the law, that moral truth is real. I'm accountable for that. I'm affirming. I'm saying God is right. God is right. Which means that then, after saying, yes, these morals are true, when I don't do it, what's that say about me? What's that say about me? Verse 17, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. This is a verse that is very interesting and very easily taken very much out of context, very much to the destruction of individuals who feel very much like they have to very radically distance themselves from their own accountability for their very big sins. But in verse 17, when it says it's no longer I who do it, does it really mean, don't worry, Christian, you robbed that bank, but it wasn't you, it was sin. You didn't rob it. It's that sin nature, blame it on sin. That's not what it means. Um, this is not saying I'm not accountable because it's my nature, which the world likes to say, don't they? Oh, I can't help it. I was born like this. If, if they found that there was a gene that made someone predisposed, and I'm not actually talking about homosexuality here. I'm just talking about any sin issue, but if they found there was a gene that we were born with that made us like cold-blooded murderers, would that make it okay? Would that mean that we should not like sentence the cold-blooded murderer because it's genetic? No, it would just mean like, wow, you're really messed up. That, that's all it means. So it's not saying that. It's not. Um, and that would disagree with the statements in Romans and throughout the Bible of accountability and of awareness and all this other sorts of thing. God, God judges the sinner. He doesn't just judge their nature. He actually deals with the sinner. So um, it may be related to the concept of addiction. It's possible because it's just this idea that there's this like monster within me. But what does it mean then? Um, I think it's, it's a spiritual differentiation between me and my sinful nature because, and here's the good news, in Christ, God can separate you from your sin. He can separate you from your sin nature. As a Christian, I don't conquer my sin nature. I die to it. I distance myself from it. I separate myself from it and I sow unto Christ and yield and walk in the spirit. And this is creating that separation. This is like a biblical anthropology, right? The the study of man, anthropology, study of man. There's, there's basically when I'm unsaved, there's me and my sin nature is dominating. And then when I get saved, my sin nature is sort of pulled off my back, set to the side, and now I can yield to the spirit or I can yield to the sin nature. And then upon our uh, full salvation, upon our new bodies, resurrection, new bodies, new creation, or if, if we get taken up into heaven and transformed and we get our new bodies, then that sin nature won't even be there anymore. And I am really looking forward to this. <laughs> because then I will be able to tolerate you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just messing with you. Um, and uh, Philippians talks about that time. So we have the before your salvation, sins controlling. If After salvation, you can walk in the spirit or the flesh. It's going to be up to you ultimately. And then you have upon our transformation and that's Philippians 3.21 it says who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself so I'm going to do this transformation in this new life and um, hopefully that will happen in the next five minutes uh, verse 18 it says for I know that in me that is in my flesh so he's just talking about his flesh nothing good dwells For to will is present with me. That means to desire, right? But how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Sin is sort of taking on a persona in this individual, Again, this is a separation of me and my sinful nature. So this results in in something. It means I can be saved and separated from that sin nature. I can anticipate a new uncorrupted nature in the future. Why don't I sin in heaven? Because I don't want to. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. There's that final deliverance that we've all been begging for. (laughs) Then there's also um, a, a, a lack of ability that he talks about in this passage. He says, um, how to perform what is good, I do not find. I can't find the ability to perform what's good. I got all these, you know, you just think about your New Year's resolutions. I don't recommend New Year's resolutions, by the way. I recommend New Year's goals. You know why? Because goals are something you can keep reaching after you failed at once. But resolutions, you break. <laughs> goals are still there, but resolutions are broken on the ground. So I think New Year's goals are nice. And it's good to reflect on our lives and all that. But... Um, but there's a lack of the ability in me to perform the things that I, that I desire to do, that I say I'm going to do it. I want to live a moral and good life. I don't find that ability where? In my flesh. I don't find it in my natural self. That's the thing. I don't find it in the natural me. In my flesh nothing good dwells. Matthew twenty six forty one. Jesus says that the flesh was weak, a lack of ability to perform. We tend to think of the flesh as being strong. The Bible says that it's weak. Sin is not strong. Anger is not strong. Wrath, your wrath, the wrath of man is not strong. You know, uh, when I was a kid they, we joked about how we were Irish and so we should be able to drink a lot of beer. Like drunkenness is strong. But anybody who's known an alcoholic knows that it's weak. Anybody who knows someone who's, who's caught up in laziness or, or lost in any kind of sin, you know that that's a weakness not a strength. The flesh is weak. Romans 8 3 says this. It says, The law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. I mean, I can't be saved by obedience because my flesh is so weak, I won't obey. I'm not going to do it. So, this is not only generic, this is personal, man. This is really personal. I, I know, in fact, I can think of someone I know personally who every once in a while they post on Facebook I hate people. I hate people. They just post that on Facebook. I've known a few people who this is their mantra every once in a while. When life's just going down, they just decide they hate everybody. Later, they love everybody. So I guess that that counteracts it somehow. Um, The problem is that in them, I see me. I hate them, but it's me. I am my problem. And this is what we've got to get into our hearts and minds. This describes the unbeliever and the believer. The unbeliever stuck under it, but the believer can overcome it, but it will still be your struggle. And if that's not true, then my entire Christian life is very confusing because I still struggle daily against the flesh. There's a daily dying to Christ, or dying to the world, taking up the cross and serving Christ that I have to do. A daily dying to self, I've got to do this. It's very personal to me. And again, the Bible is so true to the nature of man. It's, it's just describing me. So then verse 21, he's going to use the word law here. And here he means it like law of gravity, like a general principle of life. He's not referring to the Old Testament or something. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. A wretched wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. The enemy in me. That's my biggest battle. That's your biggest battle. And when we stand before the Lord, we are not accountable for what others did to us. We're just accountable for what we did. And when you talk to people in their honest moments, the biggest griefs of life are not what others have done to them. It's generally speaking, their own failings, if they're being very honest. It's not so much what my dad did or my mom did. It was when I did it. That's what really gets me. You know, these are the things, the enemy that's in me. It's the biggest battle. It's not the outward attacks. It's my sin. It's my compromise. And this is why I encourage you Christians, keep yourselves pure. Don't let sin take root in your life. If it's taking root, rip it out. You know, take this to the Lord because you can have victory. Go back to Romans 6. You can have victory, but this is the struggle. This is the battle. And we we should be able to hold each other's arms and and link together and say, hey, you just like me, you battle against sin and it is a war. But we can have victory in Christ. True victory. Really overcoming. I don't find the ability to perform in me. And the conclusion finally, in these, in the, the members he talks about in verse 23, his members that that's his body or his physical flesh I see this law in my flesh and my members warring against the law of my mind the principles or the operating principle I want to do good I want to do good bringing me into captivity the law of sin which is in my members and he concludes a wretched man that I am this is the conclusion of the sin nature notice this he calls himself wretched he doesn't say poor me there is a radical difference between the two I just recently had a conversation with somebody who was talking about all of their personal failings and their conclusion was poor me. Now there is a mountain of grace there is an ocean of grace for personal failings but not so much for the person who says poor me instead of woe is me. (laughs) There is just such a big difference. So I don't say poor me I say wretched me. Have you said this? I don't think I honestly realized I was wretched until after I was saved. It was after I was saved and God started enlightening my eyes to true morality and true spirituality. And I was like, man, I'm not either of those. You know, and I fall short so much. And in ways that people see and in ways that people don't. Wretched man that I am. I I am destroyed by me. So Paul, he's he's just fully exposing the angst of hopefully everybody and if you've never felt this, can I say this? There's a huge spiritual blind spot in your life. If you've never said, wretched me. Wretched me. If you've never thought this, and you're like, I really think I'm probably a pretty good person. It's not true. You just literally can't see the forest through the trees. It's there. And I feel this. I, personally, I feel this. No one's ever really had to point it out to me. <laughs> so it seems like it's so obvious. Like, how could you not know you're messed up? I mean, look at me. I'm messed up. So you must be. But in verse 25, he answers the question. He takes us to the depths of the angst of personal pain and disappointments and wretchedness of self-loathing. And he says, not suicide is the answer. Not even to stay here thinking about how wretched you are is the answer. No, the answer is this. 25. I thank God. Why? Because there's a solution. Because there's a cure. Because there's help for this wretch. That through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. The answer is Jesus. He's the answer to not only the guilt of sin that I can be forgiven, but he's the answer to the wretched person that I am. He delivers me from me from my failings and my shortcomings and all that stuff. And when you realize, oh, how wretched I am. And then you turn and you see Jesus and he's there going, I died for you. And and he couldn't even, he couldn't even answer the question without saying, I thank God. Paul knows the depths of wretchedness. And so he knows the heights of praise. I thank God. So we can harken back to Romans 6. We see that this is where Jesus is delivering us from the old me. Yes, my flesh serves the law of sin, but I don't have to serve my flesh. I can walk in the Spirit. God, he just cuts the ties to our old self. In fact, the Bible even calls us the old person and the new person, because it's that big of a difference. So if any man's in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. Old things have passed away. I like that because, you know, sometimes when people die, we say they've passed away. So old things have passed away that old me that, that wretchedness that I am very familiar with that has passed away it is gone so I can walk in victory so what, what's the response? the response is gratitude as a Christian with Romans 7 I, I read it and I just go man that's, that's me so how can I have pride? I mean how as a Christian can I have arrogance or pride? What if I have a skill? What if I have a gift? What if I have an ability? How can I be arrogant or proud about any of those things? Because Lord, you know the wretched state of me and you saved me in it. How can I feel superior to anybody? Anybody. I'm not superior. I'm not superior. I'm just saved. How can I have anything but gratitude to God? There's a reason why this song, I mean, think about this. One of the most popular worship songs of all time is where we sing that we're a wretch amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Because if you're in Christ, I think you get it. I think you get it. Paul has gone to really great lengths. I would say the Holy Spirit has gone to great lengths in the book of Romans to paint an accurate picture of the wickedness of man so that when we say, Lord, is your grace really enough for this wicked man? For this wicked person? That, that that we say, yep, it sure is. Because he painted me accurately and then he set me free. In Romans 8, which I can't wait to get to, uh, next we'll do Romans 8. And Romans 8 is, is leading right from Romans 7. It really doesn't stop. I, I would just keep teaching if time allowed. But... But Romans 8 gives us the new life in the spirit. So we talked about life in the flesh. That's Romans 7. But now we'll talk about life in the spirit. And so this new mode of living, this new way of life that Christians can have and should have, moment by moment walking in the spirit. And it's better than most people realize. Walking in the spirit is not primarily about spiritual gifts. While we believe in spiritual gifts, that they're active in the church, that God has gifted us, that's not the primary thing when we talk about walking in the spirit. Walking in the spirit is is better than that, actually. And uh, so I'm excited to get into that in Romans 8. Um, and we'll probably spend a few weeks on Romans 8. And then just a little preview. When we hit Romans 9, um, Romans 9 is, if, for those of you that are familiar with Calvinism, Romans 9 is one of the strongest Calvinist passages. One of. Also Ephesians, some other stuff. But it's one of the strongest Calvinist passages. And I'm excited to kind of teach it to you guys on a more theological level than, I, than maybe we would often get, like, say, on a Sunday morning type service. Because our Sunday night group is, uh, you guys are geared for that. Like, I think so. So I'm excited to get into all that, all that good stuff. But for now, for tonight, as we close in prayer, just stop for a minute and realize God knows your condition at your lowest, worst, most disgusting, perverted state. He knows. And he saved you right there. Romans 7 isn't just to beat us up. It is to lift us up. And we realize, yep, that is me and I'm forgiven. That is me, and he paid for me. That's me. I felt that. I feel that. Thank God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holiness. Revealed to us in your word. Revealed to us in our conscience. And Lord, it shows us clearly that we are messed up. We are. When we look around the world, it's not that hard to recognize that mankind has a serious sin problem and and it's only through sort of a, a happy delusion that we can pretend that everything's okay. But Lord, you meet us right there in our depravity. You save us by your grace. We thank you, God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We want to serve you in our spirits. We want to serve you from the inside out, Lord. We want to not walk in this flesh, not walk in the depravity and the failures and the, and the shortcomings and the, the temptations and slavery of sin. We don't want to walk in those things. So, Lord, we don't, we don't ask, help us conquer sin, but rather help us die to it and just to walk in the Spirit. And as we keep going through Romans, we pray for not only a, a verse-by-verse understanding of the meaning of the passage, but for a heart and life application of the transformation of it. In Jesus' name, amen. You are